I can tell my story in five words. God, cancer, addiction, death, Jesus. My guest today is Cody Brummett, with a testimony detailing his incredible journey from darkness back to the light. How are you doing, man? Good. Feel good. Welcome to the podcast. I'm grateful to have you have a sit down with me. You should name this room. It's very, the ambiance is. It's really cool, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Maybe the. Um, the jellyfish, maybe? I was thinking something with castle in it for some reason. Really? Crystal castle. Crystal castle. It's got the blue glow. Maybe. Although that's probably, I think Crystal Castles is a band that Castle of Illumination or something. Mm. The Illuminated Castle. That's good. I've never thought about nicknaming a room before. That might be a first. Yeah, it's a way to take ownership of it. Yeah. You have such an incredible story, and I know you've told it many times, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear your journey to where you are at this stage in your life, um, because I do think it's quite miraculous, and we can take it from there. When I say that the story starts with God, um, I was raised quite privileged. Uh, I was raised in a home in a very small town um, that really not a lot went on that I had to complain about. I have two incredible parents, and they absolutely broke their backs to give me and my sister everything that we needed and most of the things that we wanted. Uh, growing up and, and now being older and looking back, I realized that we weren't rich, but it felt like it most of the time. Um, I had all the time in the world to spend with my family, even though my dad worked a lot. My mom also worked. Um, they were still there for everything. And, you know, I did a lot growing up, sports, school, um, church. And so... That's why I say the story started with God is because I was raised in church. I was raised very um, traditionally Baptist, and I didn't really know what that meant at the time. But again, now looking back, I kind of understand the the approach that my church community took to faith. And my family had me there. Every opportunity that presented itself, we were in church. Um, However, my participation in that was quite um my life was so good i didn't have a lot of reason to draw close to god (laughs) honestly you know i've i've learned now that it takes some um difficulties and it takes some desperation honestly to develop a true spiritual walk and my life was void of all of that yeah uh growing up to be real and so I participated, I showed up, I was in in the doors every time that they were open, but mostly it was a social activity and mostly it was simply because it was what was expected of me. But the springtime of my 17th year, uh, I woke up the next morning after going to watch my friends play basketball in high school and my mom, I walked up to my mom in the kitchen and she said, well, did you get in a fight last night? And I said, no, Mom, you know me. Like, I'm not, not a fighter. You know, what do you mean? And she said, go look at your eye. And so I go to the bathroom, and I look in the mirror, and my 
left eye is swollen. It actually looked like I had gotten dotted right in the eye the night before. Uh, I touched it. It wasn't really sore. I didn't notice it until she pointed it out. And so fast forward about 48 hours later after visiting, I believe, three different doctors in rapid fire succession, I was diagnosed with a um, benign form of cancer. It's a very long word, and and had it not been something I'd experienced, I would never have remembered this, but it was called histiocytosis. And so um, it's not super serious. It really is more of, of just an inconvenience, to be honest. But the doctor said, we can take this off of your eye, no problem, but we need to see if it's anywhere else on your body, because if it is in certain places, it could cause you some issues. If we don't remove it, if it's in your joints or certain bones, then it needs to go. And so they began to, you know, look at my my whole body. And when they did, they found another type of cancer, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, which you likely have heard of, and it's quite a bit more serious. And so within 72 hours at 17 years old, I went from not having a care in the world and not ever really experiencing any significant trauma to being told that I have two different types of cancer. And man, was it a whirlwind in my life. I mean, I was preparing to um, go to prom. I was preparing to choose a college, try to decide what I was going to do with my life and all of that energy and focus and mindset immediately had to be diverted to survival. And that was um, the first instance in my life where I knew not only did God exist, but I needed Him. And so I quickly made a lot of changes for whatever reason. I broke up with my girlfriend because I thought that was the thing to do at the time. It's a very poignant memory in my life. Um, Yeah, so my wife is here. We haven't said that yet, and she's silently applauding on the other side of the room. Um, But just began to see life from a different perspective um, and not really certain that I would see much more of it, to be honest. And that's a very abrupt change to go from a child who honestly has never thought about death to a child that is having a hard time thinking about life. And so about two years, a year and a half uh, or so of my life moving forward is totally consumed by this. I mean, I... I go through it in terms of cancer treatment. I had just about the tests and scans tests and, and scans. And, you know, I'm from just north of Nashville, about an hour, hour and a half north of Nashville. And the hospital, the doctors that I eventually wound up with is Vanderbilt. Thank God for yeah. that, because there's not very many medical institutions on earth that are more uh profound and prominent than Vanderbilt. And so I was um, a patient at the children's clinic there, oncology clinic, and had incredible doctors. The the primary doctor oncologist I had actually kind of made a career out of me because on the other side of me, he got to go to all these different um, medical conventions and, and institutions because I was the first known person to have both of those 
diagnoses at the same time, histiocytosis and Hodgkin's lymphoma. So he pretty much spent the rest of his career, as far as I know, um, studying my case and writing literature about it and instructing and informing other doctors about this, me, who I am, you know. Um, so yeah, they put me through the gauntlet of all the things. And it began with a uh, typical approach of chemotherapy and radiation that after several months, uh, I went into remission. I went in and I got very good news uh, with some scans and went home thinking that all was well and I was ready to move forward, albeit I had no eyebrows, no hair, and I was about 45 pounds heavier than I'd ever been, but I had a very positive and hopeful outlook. Uh, and then within less than 30 days, I went back and for, you know, because that early on in recovery, you're still fairly constantly monitored. And I don't know if it was a misreading of the first test that told me that everything was fine or if it was just that quick of a turnaround in terms of prognosis but it was back the cancer was back already a month later and so just with as as most medications and medical treatments you can't really do the same thing too much for too long and so all of the uh, chemotherapies that they'd given me the first go-round were now unavailable the second go-round. Not only that, but my body's still fairly beat up from mm-hmm. the radiation and the chemo. And so they had to go big. Uh, and and that, for me, meant a stem cell transplant, which to this day I don't fully understand how it works. I do know that they gave me just about the, the most heavy-duty chemotherapy uh, they had available at the time to totally wipe out my immune system they harvested my own stem cells did whatever magic they do to them and gave them back to me and it worked um i i sit here now almost 20 years um in remission from cancer i've i've never had any sort of relapse since then Mm -hmm. and so now uh, I am just on the other side of a high school graduation, and I am less than a year in remission from cancer. I'm not certain at the time that it's actually true, because, you know, it's like, fool me once, shame on you. And so I'm thinking, like, is this real? Am I really better? Am I really healthy? I still barely have any hair, and I'm still trying to shed all the weight that the steroids have put on me. Um And it was a very interesting and complex relationship of thought that I had in my mind. Because on one hand, I now knew that death was real and it was um, potentially closer than I'd ever expected. And then on the other hand, I felt like I had overcome and withstood the the most dangerous thing this life had to offer me. And so basically I felt like I could die at any moment and I also felt invincible. And so the combination of those two outlooks on life ended up being a very uh, toxic one for me. The night I graduated high school, I smoked marijuana for the very first time. And it was the first time that I'd put in any type of illicit substance in my body. And 
it set me on a different course than I believe um, I ever thought that it would. And within about 60 days of that, I had experimented with every drug I could get my hands on, honestly. And mm. I won't really like go through the, the nitty-gritty of naming all of them, but likely if you've heard of the drug, it probably wound up on the list that I had done before that summer was over. And so for a long time, I'd, well, I say a long time, for a couple years, it it stayed in the area of partying and experimenting and uh, just kind of a thing that I wanted to do when I didn't have anything else to do when I would because I, I go to college and so when I wasn't working or when I had all my homework done or when I was going to a party with my friends like I would try to get my hands on something to make me feel better and I wasn't and never honestly have been a huge fan of alcohol which yeah. I don't know if that been a good thing or a bad thing for me but I always wanted something else were you using more out of curiosity than you were masking the experience you had been through over the last uh, or was it you, you had no prior history to that it's, it's interesting right a lot of people have and they would go to that as a kind of crutch but you sounds like you just started fresh with taking things into your to yourself you know well that's kind of the million dollar question because now i work in the recovery community yeah. and that's that's honestly the first question that you want a lot of addicts to answer is why are you doing this you know why what if you're medicating what are you medicating and um why are you allowing yourself to choose something so destructive when you know that it's destroying you to answer your question for me i don't know i don't know yeah. i know that it started as a curiosity and what i discovered was that it also worked very well as a medication yeah. um and it allowed me for a moment to transcend fear and uncertainty that i was feeling and it allowed me to escape a lot of anxiety that my health had given me in my life so that all really changed on um man i i can still smell the way that my room smelled. I can still tell you where my TV sat and what the weather outside of my window looked like and who else was in the apartment on the day that this all changed. I was sitting on the edge of my bed and I had just gone to a dentist for a very, very basic dental procedure. And the dentist removes this tooth and he sends me home with a tremendously obscene amount of painkillers. I mean, more than you would need if you were having 10 teeth pulled out of your face. And um, within about 48 hours, I was a full-blown opioid addict. I remember sitting on the edge of my bed as that warmness uh, from the opiates washed over me, and I thought, I always want to feel this way. Yeah. And so I spent the better part of the next decade trying to. And it came along with all of the typical consequences that any drug addiction will come along with. I ended up um, getting my first brush with the legal system was a, a DUI that had resulted in me 
uh, mixing alcohol and pills and getting pulled over. And so um, that was my first um, entry into the legal system. And I stayed in that for um, about the next eight years. I was in and out of multiple rehab facilities and I can't remember uh, getting back home without using again. I mean, Mm. I would typically get high before I left the parking lot of these places. It just, it wasn't um, doing for me what it needed to do because I wasn't doing for me what needed to be done. I heard a story the other day about a guy that lost his keys in his house and it's dark inside of his house because it's the middle of the night and he is searching for his keys and he looks out an open window and he sees a street light out in the street and so he thinks well there's more light out there and it probably would be easier to see and so he goes out underneath the street light and he's looking underneath where it's illuminated and his neighbor comes out and he says hey man what are you doing and he said I'm looking for my keys here, you know. And he says, well, where did you lose your keys? And he said, I lost them in the house. And that just reminded me of my approach so often to recovery as I was looking for answers outside of where the problem lied. Like I was trying to get the legal issues fixed, and I was trying to get the financial issues fixed, and I was trying to get even the behavioral problems fixed. And that wasn't where the issue lied. It was always within me, and I'm— really just distracting myself from doing any actual work. And so a lot happened um, within the context of my active addiction. And I think a lot of times folks in recovery miss out on the depths of their story because the drugs kind of overwhelm all of the other details. And I don't really want that to happen with mine because I experienced some very profound things within the the window frame of of active addiction i at one point took a bus from nashville to lansing michigan and i got to lansing michigan and hopped in a car with three total strangers and spent the next eight months driving coast to coast to coast in an oldsmobile alero myself and one other guy and two other girls with everything we own strapped to the top of this sedan and we literally just would throw darts at a map and say, that's where we're going to go next. That's where we're going to go next. And without a dollar to our name, without a plan, um, we found out that the trick is to not ask people for money for things. You just ask for the things. And so Mm -hmm. if you need gas for the car, you go to a gas station, you ask for gas. If you need food, you ask for food. You don't ask for money for the things because that's where the breakdown in trust happens. And, that was an incredible experience. Yeah. Um, that was a thing that we could do an entire other podcast about. Yeah. I kind of feel like your life is uh, would make that show Breaking Bad uh, look look soft. Um, you know? It sounds like a similar kind of thing, you know? Well, it it is, <laughs> it is a story that had I not lived it, I wouldn't believe it. If I yeah. were to tell myself my own story and not have been there to experience it, I would say that's a really nice story that you made up, you know. <laughs> and I've probably forgotten um, more yeah. than I remember, and some of that might be a blessing, to be honest. It came eventually to a point, though, right? 
it did as all things do consequences catch up on you because the the fact i left out is i got on that bus to go to lansing michigan because i was running from a probation violation yeah and had decided that if they were going to lock me up they were going to have to catch me first yeah and they did I wound up back in Middle Tennessee and and got off very light, to be honest. They didn't really ask any questions about where I'd been or why why I'd been gone. Um, And so that was just one of the kind of outlandish things that happened within the... Because that whole time, I'm in active addiction. All that, you know, running and ripping and sleeping on streets and in cars and in people's homes and all this, I was maintaining this need to always feel differently than um, what was natural. The way I I would wake up in the morning and say, nope, this is not good enough. What can I do to change this? Was your faith walk or your involvement with the church about the same as it had been? So here's the thing. I um, I have never doubted God's existence. From the moment that it was a question that my mind needed to answer. I've believed that there is a God. I just spent a really long time very angry with Him. If I'm your child, then why are you allowing me to go through this, or even worse, putting me through this? Why would you allow me to have so much hope for life and then pollute my experience with this health event that makes me doubt having a future or makes me feel less than or um broken forever you know and so yeah i believed in him i just didn't feel like talking to him and knew that there wasn't any i couldn't reach god i couldn't get him back or make him pay and so the next closest thing i could do was destroy the thing he'd created which is me and then eventually your body came to a point eventually i reckoning i I achieved my goal yep and that was a little over five years ago now i'd gone back home um to where my family lives and i'd started really just trying to get by just scraping and um still using because you know why, why stop now uh and i was at work one day and got this weird feeling in my chest and you know looking back on it now it had happened about three or four days before and then just stopped it was almost like i couldn't catch my breath and there was like a really hot balloon expanding right in the center of my chest and it happened and then it stopped and i was like well that was weird and that was scary and um but it went away and then a few days later it happened and it didn't go away and i was trying to get to a place where I could like sit down or or you know just not be standing up and the next thing I knew I was flat on my back and my co-workers and my dad and that's how I immediately knew it was serious because he doesn't he didn't work with me he had to travel to get there he they were standing over the top of me and looked very concerned and so um ambulance shows up they take me to a local hospital there and for a couple days they're trying to figure out what's wrong with my brain they think it's been some type of seizure or some type of of um issue with neurologically and i was forcefully certain that that was not what was going on and i honestly i knew it was my heart 
on November 6th, 2017. Whilst doing routine heart tests and surrounded by cardiologists, Cody's heart stopped. If you ever want to know what the grace of God looks like, it was the fact that the moment my heart decided to stop beating, I was in a heart cath lab. There's no better place to be. They they explained it to me basically as a heart attack, but it wasn't your typical clogged arteries type thing. Like my heart just stopped beating. My one of my arteries actually collapsed. Uh, that now has four stents in that artery, um, and it's been explained to me that it's a combination of extensive drug use on top of the treatment that I have for cancer, the radiation and the chemotherapy that just wreaks havoc on your body. And it just weakened me to a point where it couldn't take it anymore. And so the hospital that I was in, um, unfortunately, um, when I, after I was honest about my drug use, they began to care a lot less. I'm not going to throw shade at the, at the medical community for that because to be honest, I did bring this on myself, but I definitely f- felt like they knew that and uh, it affected my care. The best they could do was stabilize me and keep me alive, but they told my family that they didn't know how to make the situation any better. And so they decided to send me to a, a hospital centennial in Nashville that is a little more equipped for cardiac, serious cardiac issues. So on the way there, I technically died several times in the ambulance. They did so much um, CPR that they broke my sternum. Um, And so I get down there and they put me on what is fairly experimental, at least with adults. It's called ECMO. And basically it's this big machine that they typically use for newborns whose heart isn't strong enough to pump blood to all the other places in their body. And so they put me on that hoping that it will do something. And uh, the primary doctor over my care, when he went to meet with my family, he told my mom, he said, your son is the sickest person in this hospital. And um, it's a big hospital, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's for fairly serious issues. And so they knew then that uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great outlook. And they told them that I'd been so long without oxygen that if I survived, I would definitely be impaired mentally because my brain had not had what it needed for such a long time. So none of that turned out to be true because here I am. And I feel fairly competent mentally. Um, but it wasn't an easy process. Uh, the ECMO worked. Mm-hmm. The, um, the life support that they put me on worked. And I began to slowly but surely recover. Yeah. Almost two weeks, I was in, in an induced coma on life support. And then about another week in the ICU, just getting back to being alive. Because, you know, once you're flat on your back that long without mental capacities your body forgets how to do things like yeah swallow and chew and walk I, I had to relearn how to walk and so all this is happening inside the hospital and on the outside people are learning what is is happened and what is happening with me and one of those people uh two of them actually they're a brother and a sister 
um, they had been in active addiction with me a, f a decade or so earlier, and they had experienced some similar chaotic life events that had led them to a faith-based program. The women's program is in Middle Tennessee, and the men's is in Memphis. And so between the two of them, because um, Danielle, the sister, was had just graduated the women's program and was working as a staff member, and Chris, the brother, was about to graduate the men's program in Memphis. And so they got together and they got a hold of me and they said, Cody, if, if you're going to survive, you're going to have to do something drastic. And we think we, we know what that is. And so um, a month later, I'm in Memphis. It took me about 35 to 40 days to recoup physically enough for my doctor to say, okay, I think you're, you're stable enough to leave my reach and and go out here and do this because he knew as well as i knew that um as as serious and as life-threatening as the heart event was it was no use um fixing me physically if something didn't change spiritually we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to discuss cody's transition into a new life I know yours is a, an extreme example, but that's so true for people who want to change. Yeah. We look everywhere else. Yep. And it sounds like such a cliche that the, the answer's inside, but it's so true. Yeah. Well, and it's the last place we want it to be, because if it's on the outside, then I can ask somebody else to do the work. And if it's on your side of the street, then I, I don't have to worry about putting any effort in to make a change. But if it's within me, it's fully my responsibility to uh, take ownership and to accept that I can't avoid, you know, actually doing something if I want something to change. Because I would have been right back, yeah. you know, where I was if I, if I didn't have some type of transformation on the inside, if I didn't look inside my house for the keys instead of out in the street under the street light. So yeah. I remember at some point, in all of this, um, my sister telling me because I had I had, I don't know what I'd said to her, but um, it was basically me crying out for help and not feeling like I had you know a game plan moving forward. And she said, "Cody, if nothing changes, nothing changes." And that was hard for me to accept at the time because. I wanted things to change, but I didn't want to change what I was doing. I didn't want to do anything different. I just wanted to feel different. Um, and to be really honest with you, I didn't have a lot of faith that anything was going to change. I really just wanted to appear to be doing something, to be making an effort to get better. I really thought I was coming to Memphis to die honestly. And my thought was, well, at least it'll look better uh, for my family and for the people that care about me and have supported me. At least they'll say he was trying. Because I I just been through now the second incredibly traumatizing health event 
um, both of which would make you question how long you're going to be here, you know? And so my effort at the time was just to take a step in the right direction and hope it was enough to salvage a little bit of integrity and respect, you know, and maybe get myself right with God. Because, again, it wasn't, I, I knew that he had spared my life again for a reason, and I thought maybe it's just enough time for me to get that life right with him. Yeah. And um, So I come to Memphis, and I enroll in this program that is, it's going to sound hard to believe after everything I just said, but it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I spent a year in this uh, discipleship program, ultimately is what it is, it's for Uh, People with life-controlling issues, most of the time that means drugs or alcohol, not always. Teen Challenge? Teen Challenge. That's the um, what most people know it as, but it's not really for teenagers much anymore. There are a few adolescent centers across the the United States, but primarily it's Adult and Teen Challenge because, you know, our society's drug addiction has grown up with us, and it's mostly adults now that, that deal with that type of stuff. And I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, every day you're up at the exact same time and you're lining your shoes up and your your clothes have got to be in a certain order in the closet, depending on whether they have buttons and how long the sleeves are. And you've got to make your bed and there, it's just no room for error or slack. And man, it's just exactly what I needed. Yeah. Exactly. You, ha- you what hated I it, but it's kind of like when you, you know, get into to boot camp, right? Mm-hmm. You hate it, but that that yeah. discipline lasts the rest of your life, basically. Yeah, and you know, God did this beautiful thing where He distracted me from everything I was scared of, and He, um, He, He, I don't want to say He tricked me because He didn't trick me, but just like any good father will do, He um, directed my attention towards things that. At first, I didn't think I could do, but eventually learned that I could. And all the while, my body's healing, and my mind is healing, and and I'm growing stronger physically. Most importantly, I'm developing an understanding that I have purpose. Yeah. And um, it was through that, those steps, that empowered me and gave me the understanding that I've heard somebody say before that, He's not going to save you from the ocean to let you drown in the bathtub, you know? Yeah. So here I am, like, on the other side of two incredibly dangerous life events that he saved me from both, and realizing God saved me from that, like, he's going to keep me around here for a while. So what for? What What is it that I um, have that other people don't have? What is it that he's gifted me with that he's expecting me to use? What is it that I'm supposed to do? What am I here to do? You know? Uh, and so within that program, I, I, with my free time, I began to create, you know, I began to write poetry, write stories, uh, write ideas for sermons, just, you know, anything to take what he had given me and produce something with it. Because, one of my favorite parts of my faith walk and what I believe is it says that in the beginning God created us in his image and so that says a lot to me it says that he created us to do what he does to create like he's made us like him and in that making is asking us to go 
make other things. And so I just began to reignite some passions that I had for literature and for poetry and began to share it with people and could see that I had the potential to impact people that he put in my life with gifts that he had given me. Which is precisely what happened. You went, you finished the program and you didn't just move on like a lot of or most of those guys. You stayed on the staff, right? Yeah, about halfway through it, um, which is five to six months, I had been given the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Montana uh, to minister to youth in that area. And while I was there, um, God had put on my heart to stay, not only stay in Memphis, but stay and work for this program. It wasn't a thing that I was uh, expecting to happen, but was very thankful when it did. And yeah, I started talking to them about the potential for me to stay on a staff, and they were open to that. And so I did. And it was, it was A, I did feel like I had, I was equipped and I had the capacity to help disciple other people. But primarily, I knew I wasn't ready to go anywhere. I knew I wasn't um, strong enough or independent enough in my faith and in my, my willpower to just walk out back into what is the real world and ask myself to do all the things that I would need to do to stay sober and stay healthy. And so yeah. it was selfless in a way, but it was mostly selfish and just knowing this is what I need to do. But that's the beauty of God's calling is it's always going to initially help those around you. But at the end of the day, it's going to benefit and empower us because we follow um, God's leading. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I spent the next three years, um, a little over three years, doing just about everything there is to be done at Adult and Teen Challenge in Memphis. Um, it's where God called me to preach back at that same mission trip that I got the opportunity to go to again. Uh, just about the clearest thing he's ever spoken to me, honestly, was that he wanted me to be um, a preacher of his gospel. I feel more at home and it feels more like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be when I am conveying a message that I believe God has given me to give to other people. Yeah. And soon thereafter, you discovered Pioneer Church. I did. And you probably had a chance encounter with Jeremy Louison, as I did. So that's the point where our spheres kind of yeah. cross there. We do attend the same church. I did eventually encounter Jeremy Louison, but the chance encounter was actually with a sticker, believe it or not. Because when I was in the program still as a student at Adult and Teen Challenge, I had a roommate who... Um, was so he's on one side of the room and he has a mirror and I'm on the other side and I have a mirror in the bedroom and the guy that had been there before us who had just graduated had briefly attended Pioneer um, as his church while he was in the program and he had gotten one of their our window decals of the orange flag and he had stuck it on his bedroom mirror and I saw it at the time and didn't even think that it was for a church I didn't think about it at all honestly it just burned in my my memory there and then fast forward years later i mean two and a half maybe three years later i finally get to the point of employment at teen challenge where i have the freedom to find my own church and i searched and i sought 
and I seeked and I went to all these different churches in Memphis right in the middle of COVID uh, or actually right at the beginning of COVID early in 2020 and just none of them I didn't fit into any of them none of them felt like home and then one day I'm driving downtown down Madison I just left a church it had just service had just let let out and I look to the right and I see that flag and immediately the remembrance of that sticker in the wind in the the mirror from my bedroom flashed back and I was like oh I remember that that might be a church that I want to check out so the next Sunday I went and I can count on one hand how many Sundays I've missed since then and I remember you you were bringing those guys actively who were in the program mm-hmm. you guys would come in you and uh, Ben Jarrett and other mm-hmm. guys that are attending Pioneer that are also in leadership roles over at Teen Challenge. Yeah, it's just a beautiful place to worship God with people that we love. Talk a little bit about the the process there. Unfortunately, I guess that's just the, the lay of the system. You're going to have some guys that they go through, they get cleaned up, but for whatever reason, they, they foul up, they mm-hmm. foul out, they go back to the situation, the struggle, the addiction. And I know that's completely out of you guys' hands. Mm-hmm. All you can do is, is do your part and pray about it. Um, must, must be trying. must be heartbreaking. It is very disheartening. Because you're seeing guys' lives turn around and then, um, you know, turn right back around. Um, and granted, they didn't all have that, that incredible experience that you went through because you just were, you had such an incredible transformation. But um, I know all those guys are different that come through the program. Well... At first, it's more of thinking that I've let them down, thinking that there was more that I could have done, and to finally, ultimately realize I've done everything I can do. This is in God's hands. Like, this is their decisions, um, because it's, you. I think you said some guys, but it's most, this addiction experience is an extraordinarily, dangerous and manipulative beast that most people wrestle with for a really long time. Um, I would say over my four years of experience with Teen Challenge, whether as a student or as a staff member, I probably saw upwards of a thousand guys Mm -hmm. come to that program uh, and maybe maybe 5% finish the program. And then maybe 1% stay sober. I mean, of all of the people that I ever encountered at Adult and Teen Challenge, I could probably on less than two hands tell you how many of them I'm certain are still totally sober today. However, that's not necessarily bad news because regardless of whether you go through a rehab or you go through a program and you come out, and relapse on drugs or alcohol or whatever your thing is, you're going to come out and you're going to mess up. You're going to do something that makes you feel like you failed. You're going to do something that you potentially could feel guilt or shame over. And so it's less about being perfect and more about how learning how to respond to imperfection. To have a plan and to have uh, an idea of how I'm going to bounce back when I don't like the choice I just made. Exactly. That guilt and shame and then justification, whichever one of those comes first, they're just very dangerous things 
because you can feel that you're not 100% perfect. Well, of course, nobody is. Um, right. But just keeping the light in mind, especially after you've had a coming back to God, you know that he's there. You know, you know yeah. that the guidance is there. Yeah, it's tough because we have it in us to feel those things. Guilt, shame, those are natural, mm-hmm. you know, uh, responses. But uh, getting to a point where you can fall down and just get back up and keep your eyes uh, on the prize, as it were, that's that's in itself a, a big journey. Because when you fall down, you just feel so, you know, just kind of hopeless. And I guess it depends on what you're facing. I was just being yeah. general. Obviously, if you have a physical addiction or something, but um, yeah, and just getting to a place where you can have the perspective of every failure is an opportunity to grow and mm-hmm. a uh, a chance to get better at not only what you were doing or what you did, but at life in general. Like learning how to generally apply experience and wisdom to take it from one specific instance and giving application to all of you know the areas of your life and that's the insight that i have the very painful opportunity to have developed you know because it's a different kind of walk where a mistake can cost you your life it's a different kind of um anxiety and and uncertainty to know that you know typically a mistake or or a relapse quote unquote will set you back but it won't always cost you your life but for you know myself and and people that i've kind of come up with in this it it is it's it's a life or death circumstance Mm -hmm. the um the the brother and sister that i told you that helped me uh find this program here in memphis and and really kind of cleared the path for me to get here um he's not with us anymore um because you know he uh he did make a mistake that cost him his life and Mm -hmm. and that was about uh halfway through my time here in memphis and it took a toll on me to be honest yeah i do think god positions us um with uh such a precise timing because obviously he's the one who told you about Mm -hmm. the, the program here right so just how, how he positions us to, to cross one another's paths and and make a, a, a difference, um, even if we end up losing a person. Um, I think God's timing is so beautiful. It was about halfway through uh, my time here in Memphis, I would say about two and a half years ago, when my thinking of, of why I was here and why I was still here, um, more specifically, began to shift from simply survival and redemption to a full engagement with like a hope and a future you know that there was not only a reason i was still here but there were things that could be added to my life there were Mm -hmm. new opportunities for me there were new people for me to meet um and this community of believers that i found out here in this community of those in recovery that i found out here has really become like this makeshift family for me and that was a very beautiful and and um, profound way that God showed me, like, I'm sustaining you, but I'm also adding to your life. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say, you, you got cleaned up, you had a re-encounter with God, and then arguably the third best thing that could have happened is that you met a hot girl. I did. Um, yeah. And y'all got married. We did. Um, hi, Anna. Hi. 
Was it tough sitting in silence for like an hour? I was just about to say, um, with my ADHD, that is the longest I have sat in silence. This is Anna. This is Cody's bester half. Bester half, yes. We have been married for almost four months. How's it going? It is wonderful. You, you've also had a journey. Yes. Um, I guess we've all had journeys, but you've been through things as well. Mm-hmm. And you, you found each other. Um, mm-hmm. And here's my theory on that. People who have been through shit, mm-hmm. when they find each other, somehow it's different than just boy meets girl. We fall in love. For you know, sure. We get married. You have a, a much deeper connection, um, especially spiritually, since you're both, you're also involved in the church. So I would say, just from knowing you guys, that you're definitely made for each other. Thank you. But on a, on a much uh, broader, much deeper way. Yeah. And you were both new people, yes. so to speak, when you met each other. Mm-hmm. I never knew that, um, you know, the old Cody. I always say it's like a um, Saul to Paul transformation. Um, just to hear, you know, who he used to be and who he is now, like to get to know him for who he is now. I would have never believed that was the same person that had been through all that, that had made those choices. Um, And I definitely, you know, our first date, our first time talking on the phone, we shared our testimonies. um, Because when I met Cody, I was in the phase of my life where I was looking for a godly husband. I knew that was kind of my... um, you know, it was it was time for me to start dating again, and I felt peace to go to Pioneer. And my third Sunday there, I had met Cody, and like I said, we instantly shared stories. And it's crazy how we've had very different stories in different avenues throughout life, but they have also um, had similar lessons learned. Like my addiction was not drug abuse, it was not um, alcohol, but it was an addiction to attention. And kind of the same with Cody, I always knew God was real. Um, I knew that even in elementary school, it just, it was so true to me. He had made himself known to me, but I pictured God as this angry God when I knew I was rebelling and in my addiction. Um, and it was probably when I was, you know, 18 that I fell in love with Jesus. And though I had many slip ups here and there, I mean, he painted the portrait for like, I am, you know, worthy of love. So really when Cody and I met each other, you're right. Like our stories helped us to have this deep emotional relationship of, oh, you've experienced that too, even though it was through different ways. We learned a lot of the same really, really hard things, you know, that you have to look inward for the problem. You can't just always blame that relationship or that drug or whatever it is for your problem. You have to look inward. It's like, what's in me that is hurting this bad that I keep looking outward? Yeah, and both of your experiences kind of converge on a a small group that you guys Mm -hmm. lead called At The Will. Yeah. Which is really cool as well, where we can all get vulnerable and talk about stuff. Yes. Tonight at 6.30. Oh, is, that t- is it? Oh, <laughs> yes. man. Do you want to see tonight? <laughs> yeah, I feel if, if you guys had known each other back when you were both in your mm-hmm. stuff, I mean, it would have been like Bonnie and Clyde or something. I don't know. We've Imagine if Anna that. was like on the road with you across the desert, like coast to coast. Oh, I have a man. Okay. <laughs> like like role playing or something. Oh, lordy. <laughs> No, but we have talked about that. I'm like, do you think, you know, our, the old versions of ourselves before um, our transformations to Christ, I'm like, I think that side of us would have enjoyed each other too, and it probably would have been horrible. Yeah, I mean, terrible. we probably both would have ended up, like, mm-hmm. we probably would have had, like, three kids and, mm-hmm. you know, all the, you know, both probably in addiction of different kinds and just, yeah. 
Yeah, it wouldn't have been great. And that's kind of going back to what you said. God's timing in it is just insane. Um, yeah, I, I do think that you were... Mm-hmm. Your coming together was beautifully timed. Mm, yeah, for sure. It's still a process of, of mm. finding each other, too, because we're not perfect. You know, right. we're, we definitely are on the other side of these traumatic experiences that we've sat here and told you about. And we're definitely in recovery from things that we've gone through and that we've done to ourselves, but we're not perfect. And there's still a lot of issues that we're working out. And part of the tremendous blessing that she is to me is being that presence of stability and spiritual support that I never had, but now I know I have and I know I can trust and I can go to. The the last word of my five words uh, intentionally is Jesus, and that's different than, than God because anybody can believe in God. There are people out here that believe in a thousand different gods and they call anything God, mm-hmm. but to, to say no, my God is Jesus and to have that relationship and to be not only healed, but, you know, the other day I read, uh, I, I typically read New Living Translation and there's a story about the woman with the issue of blood and it says that when she touched the hem of his garment, she was healed. But when you read that in King James Version, it says she was made whole. Mm-hmm. And that's just different to me yeah. somehow. Like, I can I can get a toothache healed, but that's not the same thing as being made whole. And so God is still in this process of making me and us whole, and it's through a process of healing, but it's not been easy. <laughs> and right. I find that, honestly, the battles get tougher to fight. I just get stronger. God just continues to empower me and to build me up. And it's like one one giant in my life gets killed, and then the next one walks right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And it's the faith of the last battle that gives me the ability to, mm-hmm. you know, encounter the next one. Right. This is a, a continuum you work for a different company now. I do. I work for clinical treatment, which is very different. Uh, Adult and Teen Challenge is long-term faith-based, so uh, there is no clinical or medical approach to it, and it's you're going to spend at the very least a year in that program if you finish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I work now is a, a traditional clinical medical approach where we do um detox with medication and we will uh, do medication assisted therapy which is um, controversial but works for a lot of people Um, and the longest you'll spend in the program I work for now is 30 days so it's a very consolidated version of what I'm used to Uh, but at the same time I I am being challenged on a daily basis to fit everything I've learned in five years into an hour and a half session with these clients and hopefully if if nothing else give them a different way to think about things even if they don't behave any differently yeah again uh timing is just having come through that regimen of of teen challenge obviously prepared you for Mm -hmm. what you're doing now so thank you Mm. for your uh story yeah thank you for you know i heard somebody the other day say uh don't don't die with your music still inside of you and um i'm very grateful for what you're doing here because i feel like that's that you're expressing your music by doing this by providing a space and an opportunity for people to um tell their story and to you know 
give insight on their life experiences and by doing that you're not only learning about them but you're giving the masses the chance to do so as well and so it's very appreciated man and i i'm honored that you allowed me to share thank you <laughs>